Hello and welcome to another episode of the Symphony Podcast. My name is Bernardo Mite and with me as always is Andrew Owen. All right. And today we are going to be talking about Schubert and his symphony number nine. Okay. That's <laughs> so, the so um, Schubert, he was, oh, well, you can, you can start. Uh, sorry, Andrew. <laughs> oh, well, no, I, I think it's good to sort of talk about his early life because, you know, he's, he's pretty much the only um, Austrian in the, in the first Viennese school. I mean, pretty much the first, mm -hmm. like, person born right there around Vienna. Um, mm -hmm. Schubert was born uh, on January 31st of 1797 in Himmelfortgrund, Austria. Uh, what a lovely name. Because we like to say Austria instead of Österreich, why don't we just say Himmelfortgrund or something? I don't know. So Franz Peter Schubert, uh, or Franz Peter Schubert, uh, demonstrated an early gift for music very early on in his lifetime. So as a child, his talents included an ability to play the piano, uh, he was able to play violin, and also organ, which is you know, it's, it's impressive for a child to play the organ anyway, because mm -hmm. those yeah, pedals are so far away. <laughs> uh, and he was also an excellent singer, uh, you know, a high range, because his voice hadn't quite dropped yet. So Franz was the fourth surviving son of Franz Theodor Schubert, a schoolmaster. He's, you know, good, good man to organize a little school over there. And his wife, Elisabeth, a homemaker, was his mother. Uh, his family cultivated Schubert's love of music. I mean, it was a happy little musical household. His father and older brother Ignaz both instructed Schubert early in his musical life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, eventually uh, Schubert enrolled at the Stadtkonvikt, uh, which trained young vocalists so they could one day sing at the chapel of the Imperial Court. And in 1808, he earned a scholarship that awarded him a spot in the court's chapel choir. His uh, teachers at the Stadtkonvikt included uh, Wenzel Rutzica, uh, the imperial court organist, and later the esteemed composer Antonio Salieri, who we talked about before. Not the guy that killed Mozart. Oh, he's totally the guy that killed Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Salieri uh, lauded Schubert as a musical genius. Um, Schubert played the violin in the students' orchestra and was quickly promoted to leader and uh, conducted in uh, Rutzica's absences. Uh, he also attended choir pra practice and with his fellow pupils uh, practiced chamber music and um, playing piano. <laughs> you got plenty of good practice in there. So by 1812, yeah. however, Schubert's voice broke. And by broke, we mean developed. I mean, broke is such a... <laughs> it didn't really break. I mean, so yeah, he, he, he lost his soprano <laughs> voice and, and yeah. gained a good, healthy male tone, uh, <laughs> forcing him to leave the college, though he did continue his instruction with Salieri for three more years. Again, Salieri is the guy that was one of Mozart's rivals and taught Liszt and taught all kinds of composers Beethoven, yeah. composition. Uh, in 1814, under pressure from his family, Schubert enrolled at a teacher's training college in Vienna and took a job as an assistant at his father's school. So he was very, very good, dutiful guy. And he wasn't just a, a musician, he also had training in other things, which, you know, it's a good, almost Russian quality. So as a young composer, uh, Schubert worked as a schoolmaster, uh, really, for, for about four years at that point. So he also continued to compose music while he was serving as a, a schoolmaster. So, um, in fact, between 1813 and 15, Schubert proved to be a prolific songwriter as well. So by 1814, the young composer had written a number of piano pieces and had produced string quartets, a symphony, and a three-act opera, which mm -hmm. really isn't too bad uh, yeah. for a person who a was, young guy. you know, around the age of 20. Yeah, yeah. You know, still basically a teenager. Yeah, pretty impressive. So over the next year, his output included two additional symphonies and two of his first leads. Uh, Gretchen M. Spinrad 
and also Earl Koenig, of course, this super famous um, uh, lead, the Earl Koenig one, that basically, if you ever take a music class, you have to listen to this piece. Um, so Schubert is, in fact, uh, largely credited uh, with creating the German lead, uh, boosted by a wealth of late 18th century lyric poetry and the development of the piano, Schubert tapped the poetry of giants like Goethe, uh, showing uh, the world the possibility of representing their works in musical form. Um, in 1818, Schubert, who had not only found a welcome audience for his music but had grown tired of teaching, left education to pursue music full-time. His decision was sparked in part by the first public performance of one of his works, the Italian Overture in C Major, on March 1st of 1818 in Vienna. And I mean, I think we need to talk about the Earl Koenig, but of course, if people that are listening to this podcast know about music, they already know what the Earl Koenig is. But it's this lead that basically, you know, tells you the story, but the piano is really important. That's one of the, the, main, the main characteristics about this lead is that the piano is also helping telling, telling the story, not only what the singer is saying. And again, uh, the word lead means song. So the, when he wrote a, a song here, yeah. uh, the, the Earl Koenig, which is this... Uh, scary creature that uh, destroys the souls of children preys on them children, and yeah. eats them and this mm-hmm. little boy who's sick and he's going to the uh, going to, ho- to the hospital his father's uh, riding him on horseback or you know bringing him to the place on horseback and uh, the child is enticed by this earl king and, uh, and by the end the child dies in his father's arms it's a really uh, amazing little song especially because of how the um, the piano imitates the yeah horse galloping about and also because the you know the the singer is playing basically three characters it's, it's playing the narrator he's playing the air he's playing the the father and he's playing the son so four, uh, yeah four characters, four characters yeah. yeah so a lot of that's that's one of the reasons why it's also cool yeah, yeah they sort of use a different tone of voice yeah yeah that and uh the Gretchen am spinoada is also a very well-known work uh, for anyone who takes junior music history at university they generally study that piece too Mm-hmm. Uh, it's supposed to be a woman at a spinning wheel. Uh, so the decision to leave school uh, that uh, you were just talking about, um, so he, he decided to leave school teaching. He, he wanted to get away from that, so he'd have a little more time to, uh, to do uh, you know, creative musical composition. So uh, it did seem to usher a new wave of creativity. It really did work, not teaching, uh, for his pro- uh, prolificness, mm-hmm. pro-life. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that summer, he completed a string of material, including piano duets, uh, variations on a French song in E minor, and the sonata in B flat major, as well as several dances and songs. The same year, Schubert returned to Vienna and composed the operetta Die Zwillingsbrüder, or the Twin Brothers, Die Zwillingsbrüder, uh, which was performed uh, in June of 1820 and met with some success. Mm-hmm. Again, not not as much success as uh, he would have hoped. I mean, I've never heard of the darn thing. So. <laughs> uh, Schubert's musical output also included the score for the play Die Zauberhaufe, the magic harp, which sounds oddly familiar, um, which uh, <laughs> debuted in August of 1820, uh, which was just, um, I guess, 23 years after Magic Flute. So yeah. we have to mm-hmm. keep our magic instruments in order. For sure. <laughs> Uh, the resulting performances, as well as Schubert's other pieces, greatly expanded his popularity and appeal. He also showed himself to be a visionary. His composition Quartetstats, um, Quartetstats uh, uh, in C minor helped spark a wave of string quartets that would dominate the music scene later in the decade. Uh, but Schubert had his struggles as well. In 1820, he was hired by two opera houses, the uh, Gardner Hof 
theater and the theater under Vine uh, to compose a pair of operas, neither of which fared very well. Uh, music publishers, meanwhile, were afraid to take a chance on a young composer like Schubert, uh, whose music was not uh, considered traditional. So that's kind of a bummer that if you are trying to be original, you know, you can't really, people are not going to take a risk on you. <laughs> that's right. It's tricky. So and it required him to, uh, to find other means. His, his fortunes began to change in 1820 when, with the help of some friends, he began offering his songs on a subscription basis. Money started coming his way this way. So uh, in Vienna, especially, Schubert's harmonious songs and dances were popular. Across the city, concert parties called Schubertiaten sprung up in the homes of the wealthy residents. Uh, and he would usually be there. It was just a, uh, an evening where people would sit in a home, in a salon, and just um, play Schubert's music and sing Schubert's music all together. And it was just a big thing. Mm -hmm. uh, people were quite fond of him uh, by 1821. By late 1822, however, Schubert encountered another difficult period. His financial needs uh, were going unmet, and his friendships increasingly strained. Um, he was also he also became very sick, which made life a little less pleasant. Um, historians believe he definitely contracted syphilis, mm -hmm. Cupid's disease, as we used to call it. But it's um, mm -hmm. uh, but he seems to have gotten the syphilis. He didn't have just the most uh, traditional sexual life, so. Mm -hmm. he, he did contract a little bit of the syphilis. Mm -hmm. So not a, not a great year in 1822, but gosh darn it, 1821 wasn't half bad. <laughs> and yep, and yet, Schubert continued to produce at a pro prolific rate. Uh, his output during this time included the renowned uh, Wanderer Fantasy for piano, his masterful two-movement Eighth Symphony, the Die Schöne Müllering song cycle, the Vesvogenen, and the opera uh, Figabras. I hope I'm saying all this right. <laughs> yeah, the last one was in Spanish. Fierrabras. That means Fierrabras. Die Verschworenen. He didn't pick easy names. Yeah. And uh, since, since we just mentioned the A Symphony, that's the symphony that remained, you know, unfinished. And it's, you know, people know this, this symphony as the unfinished symphony. And I love that piece. I really like the A Symphony. And Peter, um, Peter Shickley uh, parodied that by writing the Unbegun Symphony, which uh, <laughs> he was born too late to have written the first two movements. <laughs> yeah, but the A Symphony is really good. I've played that one. I haven't played the ninth, but I've played the eighth. Um, but, I mean, I really love that one. Um, one of the uh, finished pieces, however, uh, brought him the fortune he deserved or so greatly needed. Uh, battling health problems, Schubert again turned to music for escape. In 1824, he turned out uh, three chamber works, the string quartet in A ma minor, uh, a second string quartet in D minor, and an octet in F major. Uh, for a time, Schubert, almost constantly penniless, uh, returned to teaching. He also continued to write, producing piano duets such as Piano Sonata in C major, the grand duo, and the divertissement à la Hongroise. Divertissement à la Hongroise. Yes, <laughs> the Hungarian divertissement. You gotta love uh, French. <laughs> no, but, so yeah, so uh, on to his later years. So in 1826, Schubert applied for the job of deputy musical director at the Stadtkonvikt, where he had studied long ago. Mm -hmm. uh, while certainly a top candidate, he failed to land the job. Uh, people just seemed not to... Uh, fitting for that so uh, still his fortunes during this period began to improve his impressive musical output continued uh, he became more and more popular there in Vienna uh, he was even in negotiations with four different publishers so he he was mm -hmm. sought after 
Uh, his work during this time included the string quartet in G major, the piano sonata in G major. Um, 1927, no doubt influenced by the passing of Beethoven and his uh, legacy, Schubert channeled a bit of the late composer and created a string of pieces. Uh, this work included the, 12, the first 12 songs of the Winterreise, Mm -hmm. uh, which is an incredible song cycle mm -hmm. yeah. about you know, a man going nuts, basically, you know, mm -hmm. out in, in wintertime about a lost love, as well as the piano sonata in C minor and two piano solos, uh, piano solos, impromptus and uh, moments musical, uh, mm -hmm. moments musical, mu musical moments. So, the yeah. begin so this really is kind of the beginning of character pieces, uh, yeah. you know, moments moment musical, which becomes a real staple of the Romantic era. Yeah, and we're going to talk about later that, you know, Schumann was a really big fan of Schubert. So I think all that is really connected, you know. That's why everyone still gets too confused. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> the Schubert Schumann. It's the yeah. SCHU. Really the trick that I used in college was that the B comes, up, com, comes before M in the alphabet. So Otherwise, it's really hard to say. Oh, yeah. That, they that both was... got syphilis. <laughs> um, <laughs> They're both romantic. They're kind of around the same. way too young. Yeah, I yeah I got them confused at first, but then I, I the one of the ways to remember is that Schubert came first, like the B comes first before the M. <laughs> Both were sexually attracted to youth. Uh, yeah, something to be said for that. He fell in love with uh, Clara Wieck, his piano student. Uh, Schumann did. Schubert, bless his heart. Uh, he he liked uh, he liked boys a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, just a little, like nothing nothing too serious. I'm sure. Nothing too prepubescent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. So in 1828, the last year of his life, uh, Schubert, though obviously ill, stayed committed to his craft. It was during this time that he produced what is quite possibly his greatest piano duet, the Fantasy in F minor. Uh, his other work from this time included the Great Symphony, which is the one we're going to talk about today, the Cantata, Mirjam, Siegesgesang, uh, oh my god, Siegesgesang, Siegesgesang, <laughs> and his war last, song, I guess, yeah, and his last three piano sonatas in C, C minor, A major, and B flat major. In addition, Schubert finished uh, his string quartet, quintet, string quintet in C major, uh, considered by musical historians to be the classical era's final piece. Uh, oddly enough, Schubert's first and final public concert took place on March 26 of 1828, and he proved successful enough that it allowed uh, the great composer to finally buy himself a piano. Exhausted, and with his sales continuing to deteriorate, Schubert moved, uh, moved in with his brother Ferdinand. Uh, he died on November 19th of 1828 in Vienna, Austria. Um, uh, oh yeah, because, you know, when this, what I read before is that, uh, that he's considered, you know, this, this piece is considered the last classical era's final piece, uh, you know, because Schubert is one of these composers that is in the classical period and also in the romantic period. He writes in both styles through his life, just like Beethoven did, just too. Just like Beethoven. Yeah. So uh, it was only after Schubert's passing that his musical um, prowess uh, received the kind of recognition that it deserved. His talent was in the ability to adapt to almost any kind of musical form. Uh, he, he wrote more than 500 uh, vocal works, uh, uh, written from both male and female voices as well as mixed voices. Mm -hmm. um, just a tremendous output. Like the poets whose work he, uh, he wrote his music around, Schubert was pretty darn good at lyrical beauty. Most people find when they try to set poetical texts uh, that, or poetic texts, that any time you add music to poetry it can kind of mess with the poetry, make it yeah. less good. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it just sails by things that you should really spend some time looking at or listening to. Mm -hmm. um, 
But but he had a way with just making the yeah. the poetry sing, making it do exactly what it's supposed to do. Sort mm-hmm. of perfected Goethe and Heine and yeah. all these people. So it is no secret that Schubert adored Beethoven. He was definitely, uh, definitely uh, really big into him. So th- to the point, he was almost timid to introduce himself to him when the two passed one another on the streets of Vienna, <laughs> because they they both lived in the same town at the mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. But it's far from a stretch to mention that these two musical giants uh, are uh, suitable to be said in the same sentence. Schubert uh, produced masterful works of rich harmonies and legendary melodies for many, many genres, and his influence proved considerable with later composers like Schumann, mm-hmm. who we talked about, mm-hmm. Johannes Brahms, mm-hmm. obviously was a, a bit of an influence, and the lesser known but way more harmonically strange and interesting yeah. Hugo Wolf. Wolf, yeah. Uh, <laughs> W-O-L-F, Wolf. Yeah. Uh, and and for some musical historians, as much praised Ninth Symphony opened the way for other greats like uh, Anton Bruckner and Gustav Mahler, yeah, uh, to do what what they did with the symphony. Yeah, because these and there are some people who do listen to Bruckner, and he's a perfectly good composer. Yeah, <laughs> well, this piece, the the, the piece we're going to talk about today, is is a really large, uh, it's a it's a long piece, which is strange for this time period. It's almost an hour long, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have exceptions like Beethoven's Ninth, of course. But um, but those kind of things that Mahler's gonna gonna do, you know, his first symphony, Mahler's first symphony is an hour long. We've talked about it before. But and also we can see in this symphony we're gonna talk about today, we definitely can see the influence of Beethoven in it. I mean, it sounds it really sounds a lot like a, a little a little step ahead of Beethoven, you know, trying to imitate Beethoven in a good way, of course. Oh, yeah. um, in 1872, a memorial to Schubert was constructed in the uh, Stadtpark in Vienna. In 1888, his grave, along with Beethoven's, was relocated to the Central Friedhof, uh, the Viennese cemetery that is among the largest in the world. There, Schubert was placed alongside fellow musicians, uh, musical giants like Johann Strauss II and Johannes Brahms. <clears throat> All right, so let's talk about this symphony, uh, the symphony number nine. <clears throat> and this is, oh, an- another thing, you know, it kinda, it's kind of sad that he died so young. He, he didn't die, you know, too, too, too far from Beethoven, but he was born, you know, way ahead of Beethoven. So Beethoven had a much longer life than Schubert had, you know, he only lived like 30, 31 years, 32 years. That's kind of sad. And Schubert got to hear his final compositions, so, you know, mm-hmm. something Beethoven couldn't do. That's true. That's, yeah, that's true. So this symphony, symphony number 9 in C major, um, is known as The Great. Uh, published in 1840 as Symphony No. 7 in C major. Uh, it's listed as number 8 in the Neue Schubert Augstabe, uh, and it's the final symphony completed by Franz Schubert, of course. But this, oh, that's another thing about Schubert symphonies, is that because he has the, the unfinished symphony, uh, then the catalog numbers are all over the place, and it's really, it's really, it's, it's really complicated to, to find a standard here. But now, I mean, nowadays we kind of have a, a good a good, you know, a standard of, of the numberings of all the symphonies. But have, uh, D numbers, uh, I think they stand for Deutsche. Yeah, yeah, Deutsche, yes. Uh-huh. And um, this uh, symphony was originally called the Great C Major to distinguish it from his symphony number six, which was also called the Little C Major. That's so uh, cute. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> like the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the subtitle is now usually taken as a reference to the symphony's majesty. Uh, unusually long for a symphony of its time, a typical performance of the great takes around 55 minutes, uh, though of course it can also be played in as little as 45 minutes by employing a faster tempo and no repeating sections as indicated in the score. So yeah, so sh- <laughs> it's quick. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's pretty, you can go as fast as you like. 
Uh, Schubert began the symphony in 1825 and completed it in the following year. The first performance wasn't given until March 21 of 1839, so he didn't actually hear it, uh, in Leipzig under Felix Mendelssohn, Bartholdy, uh, Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdy, the, uh, the great Christian master with the, whose father <laughs> used to be a Jew. Um, uh, the, the score calls for pairs of flutes, oboes, clarinets, bassoons, horns, and trumpets, three trombones, timpani, and strings. So, you know, sort of almost a classical um, yeah. thing together, plus the trombones. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Pretty much the same as what you'd expect. Time. So the performance time is approximately about 50 minutes, as we talked about before, almost an hour. Mm -hmm. uh, so when Franz Schubert died at the age of 31, the legal inventory of his property listed three uh, cloth dress coats, three frock coats, <laughs> ten pairs of trousers, nine waistcoats, uh, one hat, uh, five pairs of shoes, two pairs of boots, four shirts, nine neckerchiefs, a uh, pocket handkerchief, uh, 13 pairs of socks, and one sheet, two blankets, one mattress, one feather bed cover, one, and one counterpane that is a bedspread. Apart from some old musical besides, the report concluded no belongings of the deceased are to be found. Mm-hmm. So, but, yeah, <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> but so some. That would be good to throw, throw his entire inventory. At <laughs> yeah, thirty-one years old. Yeah, some old music, as it turned out, referred to a few uh, used music books and not to his to his manuscripts. Uh, those were his dear uh, dear friends Franz von Schubert, who later entrusted them to Schubert's brother Ferdinand. Uh, no one, it appears, quite understood understood their value. In late eighteen twenty nine. Ferdinand sold countless song, um, songs, piano works, and chamber music to the Diabelli and Company, the, the publishing company who we talked about before, who took its time publishing them, leaving the symphonies, opera, and masses to sit untouched uh, on, on his shelves at home. Finally, in 1835, he enlisted the help of Robert Schumann, then editor of the prestigious Neue Zeitschrift für Musik. Uh, the paper ran a list of Franz Schubert's larger, larger posthumous works available for sale. There was uh, little response in in here at first. Like, who is Schubert? I don't care about that. Kid. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Can you imagine Franz Schubert? <laughs> uh, oh my gosh. So uh, anyway, uh, so on New Year's Day of 1837, Robert Schumann found himself in Vienna and thought to go to the Währing Cemetery to visit the graves of Beethoven and Schubert, whose stones were separated by only two others. On his way home, he remembered that Ferdinand still lived in Vienna uh, and decided to pay him a visit, Ferdinand being um, uh, Schubert's brother that he lived mm -hmm. with uh, right mm -hmm. before he died. Uh, so Schubert at least had Ignaz and Ferdinand in his life. Um, <clears throat> here is Schumann's own famous account. Quote, He, Ferdinand, knew of me uh, because of that veneration for his brother, which I have so often publicly expressed, told me and showed me many things. Finally, he allowed me to see those treasured compositions of Schubert's, uh, which he still possesses. The sight of this hoard of riches thrilled me with joy. Where to begin? Where to end? Mm -hmm. Among other things, he drew my attention to the scores of several symphonies, many of which had never as yet been heard, but were mm -hmm. shelved as too heavy and turgid. Mm -hmm. Just so, yeah. imagine something he, like that. Yeah, here but, comes Schumann, the nerd. is geeking out over all these papers there that she were left. <laughs> like, no one's going to play this stuff. It's just Schubert. Yeah, and there, among the piles, lay a heavy volume of 130 pages, dated March of 1828 at the top of the first sheet. The manuscript, including the date and a number of corrections, is en it's entirely in Schubert's hand, uh, which often appears to have been flying as fast as his pen could go. The work, a symphony in C, Schubert's last and greatest, uh, had never been performed. Uh, uh, Robert Schumann was a thoughtful, per per perceptive man, 
and an unusually astute judge of music. He was among the f very first to appreciate Schubert's instrumental writing, but it's, it's difficult to know uh, uh, even if he at first understood the significance of his, dis of his discovery. His well-known written account comes years later after the symphony's first performance, but on, on that first day of 1837, in a Ferdinand study in a Viennese, in a Viennese uh, suburb, he must have been simply dumbstruck. <laughs> We, we can only assume. I mean, we, we are sort of victims of the canonization of composers. If you kind of think of yeah. Schubert as being among this, among the people like um, Joachim Roth or uh, mm -hmm. Niels Gada, who's just an mm -hmm. obscure composer that no one's heard of, mm -hmm. uh, and you just see these old scores, you go, well, that'd be neat to perform, I guess. But, <laughs> I mean, that's probably how a lot of those contemporaries looked at him. Uh, mm -hmm. Looked yeah. at him as someone like, I don't know, Kanlan Nankero. Like, okay. I mean, I heard about him in graduate music history, but other than that... Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I can see that uh, uh, it's because of Schumann that I think that we probably venerate Schubert just as much oh, as we yeah. do. Yeah. Um, he knew a work of genius when he saw one. He was, uh, Schumann was. He, he, was, he quickly sent it off to the director of the Gewandhaus Concerts in Leipzig, where Mendelssohn conducted the first performance on March 21 of 1839, Mendelssohn being a Leipziger. Mm -hmm. uh, there, in Schumann's words, it was heard, understood, heard again, and joyously admired by almost everyone. Quote, mm -hmm. The facts argue that it was hardly joyously admired, and that perhaps it was only uh, it was understood only by Schumann and Mendelssohn. Uh, mm -hmm. In uh, his boundless enthusiasm, Schumann fails to mention that it was extensively cut for the performance. But he is mm -hmm. surely right in wondering how long it might have lain buried in dust and darkness, even if uh, if it weren't for his own efforts. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, the handy baton of Mendelssohn Bartholdy. Yeah. Uh, still, it was slow to conquer. Uh, when just the first two movements were programmed in Vienna later that year, an aria from Lu Lucia di Hammermoon was wedged between them uh, to, to soften the blow of so much serious music. I hope it was the bloody scene and at the end of Lucia, <laughs> where she's like, uh, <laughs> just killed the man and walking downstairs, their wedding dress covered in blood. But yeah. whatever. Probably not. Probably not that part. No. Uh, and the performances uh, were planned for Paris and London in the early 1840s, where, uh, which were cancelled after irate or orchestra members refused to submit to its difficulties. So, you know, musicians just were, weren't going to have it. <laughs> the symphony uh, reached London in 1856, but in odd installments. The first three movements were played one week and movements uh, two through four the next. So, you know, the first couple of performances of this piece are just so, you know, so sporadic and, you know, cut apart, you know, so people didn't listen to the whole thing at first. So it's hard to, you know, to see the whole picture like that. <laughs> and, they, and they also applaud it between movements, which is fine. Yeah. Uh, I'd be for it, doing that again. Anyway, <laughs> eventually, though, Schumann's verdict reigned, and he was recognized not only for his fortuitous discovery, but for his sharp-sighted assessment. Schumann spoke um, of the symphony's heavy length, the very quality many contemporary listeners find trying, uh, trusting only Beethoven to stretch their patience. Uh, mm -hmm. Schumann had an answer for that too, insisting that Schubert never proposed to do, never proposed to continue Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. But an indefatigable artist, he um, he continually drew from his own creative resources, quote unquote, mm -hmm. uh, like uh, Beethoven, but in his own quiet, uh, individual way, in his own very particularly individual way. Um, uh, Schubert was uh, forging ahead in the music's dark unknown. Uh, Schumann demands our sympathies. Uh, almost recognize that it reveals to us something more than beautiful song, mere joy and sorrow, such as music has always expressed in a hundred ways. It leads us into regions which, to our best recollection, we had never before explored. <laughs> yeah. I like these old words. 
<clears throat> the, path, the passage of time has helped audiences embrace both Schumann's enthusiasm and the extensiveness of Schubert's concept. Uh, time and research, and research uh, also have put the work in its proper uh, slot among Schubert's 998 compositions, just too shy from a thousand, man. Uh, the final count of Otto Enrich Deutsch, uh, whose indispensable catalog uh, in 1950 assigns a D number to each each work, um, and we now we now know something that even Deutsch didn't realize. Uh, this supposed this is the supposedly lost symphony of 1825, which Deutsch assigns number eight, 849, uh, sketched at uh, Gmunden on a summer outing. Uh, later, when Schubert wrote out the full score in fair copy, he dated the manuscript March of, 18, of 1828. Uh, to that, later generations added a subtitle, Great, to distinguish it from the shorter Sixth Symphony, also in C major. Uh, and Deutsch number is now 944. Yeah, it's sort of tricky. All the compositions kind of happen at the same time. Yeah. This life is so short. Mm -hmm. So, as for the music, many earlier writers, including Schumann and Donald Tovey, who was just this... Uh, I don't want to say uh, blowhardy, but <laughs> he, he's just, uh, Toby was a very verbose guy. He, he's what well, many musicologists consider the, the ostensive method. Here it is, instead of actually <laughs> going into the, talking about these things. He sort of gave a plot summary of things, typically. Uh, so he wrote very eloquently and at considerable length about the symphony's greatness, uh, both Toby and Schumann. Today, the music more easily speaks for itself. Schubert's broad canvas is no longer thought oversized, and his peerless, ineffable way with the melody can carry the new listener through many difficulties. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Schumann is particularly reassuring in this regard. He says, uh, the composer has mastered his tale, and in time, its connections will all become clear. Mm -hmm. It becomes clear when you compare it to the crazy long things that happen later. Uh, oh, like, yeah. Oh, well, this is just a nice little uh, <laughs> hour-long symphony. <laughs> yeah. So the symphony is in the traditional four-movement structure. The first mm -hmm. movement begins with an andante of such weight and, weight and nobility that it's uh, inadequately described as an introduction. Mm -hmm. uh, that bold yet quiet opening horn call has a marked influence on many of the allegro themes to come, and then return to the movement sound, loudly proclaiming its success. The entire allegro reveals a sweeping rhythmic vitality unparalleled in Schubert's work. So the first movement begins with this introduction, uh, with its own miniaturized exposition development and recap, just just mm -hmm. right there in the introduction. Mm -hmm. And the opening theme is used in a modified form as uh, secondary subject matter in the main section of the movement. So the rest of the movement is in sonata form with two periods for each theme uh, and several transition themes and extra material. So if, if, if Schubert had tools to make it longer, he used them. <laughs> uh, the opening theme of the introduction is restated in the coda before the final cadences. Uh, if, if you, um, well, the way the second theme in the first movement starts off in E minor rather than G major, uh, the G major that you should expect, and the way that Schubert ties the room together in the first movement's coda, uh, he's able to introduce the theme of the slow introduction to clinch the music's architectural momentum. Uh, it's, um, it's a lot of work. It's really technically well put together, um, yeah. using sort of classical ideals with romantic uh, sensibilities. It, yeah. It's kind of Brahmsian. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and the slow movement uh, sings of tragedy, which later raised its voice in Schubert's uh, Winterreise song uh, cycle and surfaces again and again in the music of his last years. Uh, seldom has Schubert's fondness for shifting from the major to the minor mode carried such weight. Here, each hopeful thought is ultimate, ultimately contradicted, gently but decisively. 
uh, there is a sublime moment when the horn, as if from the distance, quietly calls everything into questions uh, with the repeated, repeated tolling of a single note. And then later, Schubert, like Gretchen in one of his most famous songs, builds inex inex inexorably uh, to a climax so wretching that everything stops before sputtering back to life. Yeah, I mean, for Schubert, I mean, for Schubert major and minor keys were... Uh, were particularly meaningful, especially in his songs. Like his Winterreise at the major ones, or when he's in his real dark world. Major uh -huh. ones are when he's uh, not his, where he's in his dream world that's mm -hmm. not true and it's fantasy, and the minor is the real world. Like he's yeah. always used the the two modes to to yeah. make musical uh, things happen. Yeah, this like a moment is also in a modified sonata form, sonata form without a development section, characterized as P1 S1, P2 S2, or A B A B. Uh, the slow movement does just as strange things with the key centers as the first movement, uh, making sideward moves by thirds instead of conventional fifths. Uh, the emotional effect this produces when you hear the music uh, shifting by thirds creates a different kind of musical movement to be surprised and even shocked at how different it is uh, to where you were before, rather than progressing um, through a slowly but logically changing landscape. So, you know, using all these forms that we knew before, but, you know, using them in a new way, kind of like Beethoven. We know that Schubert loved Beethoven, so there is some similarities there as well. Yeah, like, if you listen to, um, I mean, this piece is so strange. Like, normally in a sonata you have a primary theme and a secondary theme. This sonata um, uh, has this, uh, this set in the second movement, uh, has a, a primary theme one, secondary theme one, primary theme two, secondary theme two, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of strange. Lots yeah. of double primes. Yeah. So, so then come the scherzo and the finale, uh, two of the most rhythmically relentless pieces in the orchestral repertoire. It's just very, um, um, pretty strong stuff. I mean, I am sure that probably Steve Reich's work is probably a little more rhythmically relentless. <laughs> but uh, the scherzo and its lovely uh, trio midsection with their wealth of dance tunes uh, reminds us that Schubert would gladly improvise dance music for others while he, with his lousy eyesight and unfortunate height, um, sat, <laughs> uh, sat safely at the piano all night. Uh, so the third movement uh, is a lengthy scherzo and trio, which is structured in sonata form. Mm -hmm. uh, in the transition in the trio section, where Schubert repeats a single note to the point where it's removed from its harmonic context, uh, allowing him to slip into a totally different key from C major to A major as if by magic. Mm -hmm. uh, C major and A major, really not that related. Mm -hmm. uh, if you hear A major in the key of C major, it's to get to D major, uh, which is <laughs> sure. just secondary. I mean, it's just, you know, it's wacky. Because you have to actually sharp the tonic to get to A major, yeah. to sharp the home. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of wacky, but he makes it work. He, he's quite good at um, using the single notes and using common tones and all those things that good theory teachers try to teach you to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's. I mean, we see this this thing coming back again in this in this piece where you know he's basically, you know, playing with your expectations. You know, shifting the keys here and there, which is great. Uh, Schubert launches his finale with uh, the kind of energetic, fearless music that appears to change onward, uh, to charge onward, with only an occasional push from the composer. Uh, but Schubert, like Mozart, is a master of deceptive simplicity, uh, luring unsuspecting performers into countless pitfalls and allowing generations of listeners to cherish the image of the brilliant composer. All inspiration and no sweat. Uh, the finale is an extended sonata form as well, where are no less than six unique thematic elements in the main theme alone. Uh, the development section focuses on the third and sixth thematic elements. Uh, there is an extensive use of ostinato in accompaniment of two of the thematic elements. The opening theme of the, from the introduction of the first movement is rest restated at the end of the coda in the 
uh, here at the end of the quarter. In the finale, listen out for the uh, 22 repetitions of the same ostinato melody in the woodwinds and brass uh, for a moment of genu genuine orchestral weirdness and, and thrill. Uh, and thrill. Uh, right at the end of the piece, when the violins at last fulfill the destiny of one of the tunes uh, they've been playing over and over again by celebrating its cadence into C major. Schubert uh, never completed another symphony, but it would take musical culture on, uh, until late into the 19th century to digest and understand what he had really achieved in this one-of-a-kind piece. So, uh, fantastic work, of course, and, you know, there's so many, I mean, I mean just, just talking about this reminds me so much of Beethoven, you know. Uh, there's the C major, like, you know, the C minor fifth symphony of Beethoven that, of course, ends famously in C major, something that he's doing here as well. You know, this idea of cyclic, cyclic um, you know, motivic elements that, that she was using here as well, you know, bringing the theme from the first moment into the last, uh, into the coda of the last moment. So all these things, you know, because we know, you know, of course, Schubert, a uh, big fan of Beethoven. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, yeah. All, it's all very brilliant. The, the music is pretty carefully crafted, just a, a different level of composition, uh, compositional ability than what we uh, might expect to hear uh, in some other venues. Um, mm -hmm. Like I've been joking around on Facebook that people, um, I, I like to say things like Heinrich Schütz was a better composer than Morton Feldman. I certainly think that Schubert might be a better composer than John Cage. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think John Cage could have done this piece. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. It's um, just a different aesthetic. Yeah. And of course, as a flute player, I have to mention something about Schubert. Schubert has this wonderful um, sonata. Well, it's a, it's a theme and variations, basically, uh, that Schubert wrote. And it's, it's, one, it's another one of my favorite pieces uh, written for the flute. Because the introduction of the theme is amazing. It's really beautiful. It's so romantic, full of you know, passion, full of... Uh, all these awesome melodies, uh, these awesome harmonies in the piano, where the flute is basically playing three notes in this in in this um, in this introduction, but the piano is has so much weight, you know, kind of like his songs, you know, the piano so much is really important in his in his music. Oh yeah. Mhm. Mm all right. Anything else you want to say about Schubert? I think <laughs> I'm pretty pretty solid. If you want to learn more about Schubert, feel free to search the World Wide Web for all kinds of wacky information about the guy. The news uh, agencies, uh, or sorry, news uh, got really big in the late 80s and early 90s into Schubert's sexuality yeah. because he was kind of into... Uh, he was really familiar with lots of young males. Mm -hmm. uh, used uh, very informal ways of addressing them. Mm -hmm. uh, people assume that he probably fooled around a little bit and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's it's interesting. Feel free to look more into the guy. He's just a just a fascinating uh, person in the history of music and the transition from music as um, as exemplar, music as uh, as something that's graceful and per and trying to be perfect into self expression, which is sort of the, the romantic idea that yeah. Beethoven really put into motion. Of course, uh, Schubert, uh, I think, is he just sits right there in that crux. Probably mm -hmm. a, he's a lot more classical than Beethoven was, but yeah, um, still just has a, a great depth of personality that that comes forth in his music while still being highly informed by the classical era. Mm -hmm. yeah. Really neat stuff. Yeah, and this is I think this is the farthest back in time we've we've gone in this podcast. Schubert is I, I we haven't gone 
back this far in this podcast. We've talked about, you know, Brahms and all these composers that came right after Schumann. We talked about Schumann, another composer that came right after Schubert, but we haven't talked about, uh, of course, we haven't, I don't want to touch Mozart or Beethoven yet because, you know, I, 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 I feel great respect for those composers and I, <laughs> I don't want to mess anything up. <laughs> they're, just, they're just working musicians, they're just doing their thing. Yeah, and uh, like the, the symphony itself, this is called the Symphonic Podcast, the symphony itself kind of began uh, right around like 1730, 1740. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Sammartini and Stamitz, these, uh, these uh, German and Italian composers that uh -huh. had these pieces like that. So in this podcast, we're probably not going to discuss anything too far back in history, though. You know, any group of instruments can yeah. be considered symphonic. Yeah, Just but we're getting there. We're getting there. And we're going to eventually talk about those composers, you know, Stamit, Haydn, Mozart. But, you know, I'm, I'm still a little weary because I have so much respect for them. <laughs> well, we can start with people that we have less respect for, like, um, <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, people don't talk too much about... Um, Abel, uh, A B E L. He's a he's a big guy. Uh, J C Bach. We could spend time talking about. Oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> C P E. We'll never talk about old Emmanuel Bach. Yeah. <laughs> Johann Christoph. Yeah. Johann Ludwig. Whatever you All want, right. man. We're good. Oh yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Symphony Podcast. As always, you can reach us at on, you know, we have our email address where you can uh, send us any questions you have. It's symphonypodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on YouTube uh, where we have all our, our videos there in one place now. We also have, of course, the podcast, um, which you can find, of course, on iTunes. And well, until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Yay. <laughs> My country is of the sweet <laughs> It's okay, it doesn't work when Skype does it in real time. <laughs> like, why is he singing the wrong time? <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of lag, but I think it's going to be fine. That's normal. I do All right. it. As long as it's not more than two seconds, I think it'll be fine. Yeah. You ready for this? Yep. Yeah.